Hello and welcome to That Science, the podcast exploring the meaning of science today. I'm Amelia Doran, your host, and this is What Science. Today's episode is all about scientific discoveries, the momentous moments which mark scientific progress. Our guest is Matthew Cobb, a lecturer at the University of Manchester, whose research centres both on zoology and the history of science, technology and medicine. He's written popular science books, including The Egg and Sperm Race and The Idea of the Brain and is currently working on a biography of Francis Crick, half of the team who discovered the double helix. Matthew and colleague Nathaniel Comfort recently published new evidence on the nature of Watson and Crick's relationship with Rosalind Franklin, the famed researcher who took photograph 51. Here's our discussion of scientific discoveries. So hi, thank you so much for joining us, Matthew. So would you just like to start by introducing yourself a bit, what you do now and how you got here? Well, I'm technically Professor of Zoology at the University of Manchester, and I've had a uh, research career that's primarily focused on chemical communication, so the sense of smell and pheromones in insects, both mainly Drosophila, uh, the tiny little fly, but also not only as a, a fly, but also in particular as a baby, as a maggot. And I've done a lot of work on, in particular, the sense of smell of maggots. I've also worked on ants, I've published on dog-handedness, all sorts of stuff. But alongside that kind of traditional uh, research-oriented work, Uh, experimental work, I've been very interested in the history of science. And this goes back, I was working on a a paper on how maggots smell, what and how do maggots smell, it was called. So it's a big review. One of the things you have to do in a review is to read everything there is. And you'd be surprised there's a lot on the sense of smell in maggots, and in particular on the anatomy, on this tiny little structure they've got on the front of their heads. And I kept on seeing references to work that was done in the 17th century. And I kept on thinking, look, there's no way. This, I mean, this this you know, maggot is very small and its nose is even smaller. Uh, there's no way there can be anything of any interest. But eventually I thought, well, I might as well look. And at the time I was working in Paris and I could go literally next door to the Natural History Museum where there was a library and I could just say, please hand me this book, uh, which was published in the 18th century, in fact, in 1738. And they bring it out. It's two huge, great big bound volumes, you know, open it up. And it's all in uh, Latin and Dutch. And I have no Dutch and my Latin is so awful I failed my GCSE. Um, So I couldn't actually read it, but what I could do is look at the pictures. And I was amazed that there was a uh, a drawing of not only the maggot's nose, but also of its whole, its brain and its nervous system that had been dissected out, this tiny little thing about two or three millimetres long. And then this chap called Jan Schwammerdam, who was an early Dutch microscopist, had actually drawn it and produced this huge amount of work about all sorts of things to do with insects and I was amazed because I'd never heard of him I then discovered that nobody else had either he's been completely forgotten and that was kind of the beginning of me thinking well I want to start writing and doing more uh, not just reading about the history of science but actually kind of studying it more intensely so that was about gosh 25 years ago and that's what I've been doing ever since alongside the other stuff so today's topic is all about scientific discovery. So I think the first thing that we kind of have to tackle is what do we mean when we talk about scientific discoveries? 
Well, yeah, I mean, define your terms is always a good uh, advice for a student who's writing a, an essay, because that way, you know, it's harder for the marker to argue with you if you've actually set out how you're going to interpret scientific. I think we can just leave. I'm not going to start saying what is science, right? But let's think about what a discovery is. So the implication is that this is something that was not known before. But then you get something interesting like, well, for example, CRISPR, this technique for editing genes, is that a discovery or is it an invention? Now, I think it's an invention, right? Because it's actually an application of various processes that are going on and they've been then engineered to produce a particular outcome. And that seems to me much more like an invention, like PCR. PCR wasn't discovered, right? So PCR, the amplification of DNA that we all know about through the pandemic, you get a tiny amount of DNA. And then by simply putting it through a series of cycles of uh, changing temperature and activity of various uh, enzymes, you can actually multiply the number of copies of that piece of DNA and thereby identify a particular virus, a suspect in a criminal case, or even traces of individuals who have been in a particular cave tens of thousands of years ago. But that tool wasn't discovered, I don't think. It was invented. So we got discovery and invention. And I think discoveries like, I don't know, the circulation of the blood. Yeah. So who discovered the circulation of the blood? Well, it was William Harvey. Well, was it? Because the, you know, the idea had been hypothesized uh, before in particular by the Arabs, and Harvey couldn't actually demonstrate it. So one of the things that happens in the circulation of the blood is that it goes down your arteries, yeah, from your heart and your arteries, and then goes into the periphery, and then you got the veins bringing the relatively deoxygenated blood back to your heart. But what's the physical connection between your arterial system and your venous system? And Harvey, working at the beginning of the 17th century, didn't know. He couldn't see it. In general, we condense events into a particular meaning. You know, when did the French Revolution begin? Did it begin on the 14th of July, 1789? That's when the Bastille was seized. Well, yes and no. In many ways, it began, you know, years and years, decades earlier, as there's a growing crisis inside French society. And it certainly carried on. I mean, you could argue it still hasn't finished. Whenever you have a label, you can sense the kind of platonic reality that it's trying to represent the abstraction, you know, the fundamental thing that's there, but actually that doesn't really exist. And it's always going to kind of turn when you actually get into it, it's going to disintegrate. It's going to fall apart. Like one of those poor old raccoons who gets a piece of uh, candy floss and raccoons like to wash their food. And so it gets the candy floss and it puts it in the water and it goes, where'd it go? <laughs> Things that just happen, random crap. So the, you know, the classic thing is Fleming discovering uh, penicillin. Well, he didn't just immediately discovered penicillin. He discovers a phenomenon where these bacteria are no longer growing because of the activity of the, the fungus. And that then sets him onto the, well, what on earth's going on here? But the discovery, the aha moment is just random crap. And, you know, hundreds of people may have seen that before and not thought anything of that. They're rather than, well, that's annoying. Why did that <laughs> do that again? Okay, it hasn't happened this time. Whereas, you know, because there was a contamination, then he gets this fascinating result that then gets him thinking, well, what's happening here? So the discovery then gets, which in fact is a huge long process because you've got to identify exactly what the product is. And then finally, goodness me, turn it into something that you can uh, uh, administer to humans uh, in order to prevent them from getting ill. But the, the discovery of penicillin is this single instant, which did happen, but not in the way that we imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think that connects very nicely to your paper, which is 
why we asked you to, to come on today. So you wrote a paper about Rosalind Franklin and her role in the discovery of DNA and how maybe it was a bit kind of overhyped. And I read that paper not realising it was written by someone at the university. And then you came and lectured for us and I was like, oh, <laughs> it's the same thing. So that was quite exciting. But I really liked the way that you described, you know, the kind of pop culture view of Photograph 51. So Rosalind Franklin's big crystallography photo that she'd taken. It's very famous as sort of like a, a literary device as a eureka moment that didn't really happen mm-hmm. um, when Watson was then writing about it later. And I think that sort of eureka moment is really interesting because it is what we all think of when we think of scientific discoveries. Yeah. But I don't know how often that happens in the way that we we think about it. Yeah, I mean, because going back to, I can't remember who said this, but in fact, the significant thing moment in a piece of scientific work is not eureka and you leap out of your bath, but that's funny. Why did that happen? Which is a bit different because you don't actually know. I mean, you then got to try and work out, develop hypotheses. You know, in a kind of very ideal world, you come up with different hypotheses. And if you're really, really clever, you can come up with an experiment which will distinguish between those two hypotheses. And that is when you feel very, very pleased with yourself. I think I've only ever been able to do that once because normally what happens is you've got one hypothesis, you do an experiment, it doesn't support the hypothesis and you don't know why not. (laughs) So you do it again. And if you get the same result, you think, okay, actually, right. So that's that hypothesis is not correct. Something else must explain it. And that's kind of, you know, philosophers don't like that because it doesn't seem kind of neat. But in particular in biology, because it's so complicated, that's generally what happens is that you, you know, when you're you're actually doing the experiment, not when you're writing the paper, because of course the paper that you write, which is how we discover discovery how we learn about it, how we we apprehend it as scientists and as students is presented in a completely artificial way. You have to go through a logical argument in terms of how you carried out the experiment and each set of experiments builds up to a conclusion. But that is always, almost always completely artificial. And it is constructed just like the language is stilted and artificial. This structure which is a story, which doesn't mean to say it's not true, but it does mean to say it's constructed in order to convince you, in order to dissuade you of all the alternatives that you as a reader come up with. Ah, yeah, well, you haven't controlled for X or what about Y? And then you see, right, now next we controlled for X and Y and they didn't actually alter whatever, you know. And that process is, in fact, you know, amazingly kind of wiggly and branched and lots of dead ends in it. And then you get to this presentation version of it, whether it's in a poster or a, a talk or in a written form, which is completely and utterly different, in which you are actually trying to convince the the reader of the veracity of what you have seen. I think that sequential kind of the storyline thing is really interesting. We've talked a lot about how a lot of science that we perceive is quite utilitarian, and you're going, okay, we need to learn this, so we did this, and then we learned this. Whereas there's so much of it that actually has to happen kind of on the sides of that. And how do we know what we don't know? And we need to do these experiments to work out what we're going to do our experiments about. And all of that that doesn't get published because it's not useful science when actually it all feeds into each other. I think that is really interesting and kind of leads me on to, to what I think is so important and interesting in scientific discoveries, which is that very, very, very rarely does anyone just do all of the work and get all of the answers and can say, yeah, this is this is 100% me. No one came up with it before, didn't use anyone else, no citations needed. And that whole kind of teamwork 
the scientific community, I think is is really important. And that's maybe, yeah, what I think is... What that shows you is that science is different from other forms of knowledge. And I would argue it is superior in terms of the closeness of its output to reality. And that is, it is progressive, not progressive as in that it is working to a socially good end, but progressive in that it builds upon previous understandings and above all misunderstandings. Yeah, the idea of sort of building and, and progress and how we, in science, we, we move onwards always. It goes back to a paper I was reading about how we kind of separate social sciences, mm -hmm. as nebulous a term as that is, and, you know, natural sciences. And someone was saying that in, I can't remember the scholar, in social sciences, the citations last and you'll be citing, you know, the same seminal work of X or Y for, for years and years and decades. Whereas in science, you know, citations die out as new things come along. Don't know how far I agree with it, but it's a very interesting way of making the distinction. Hello, Editing Amelia here. So this point was paraphrasing of the theory of Auguste Comte, who proposed a hierarchy of science with natural sciences at the top end and social sciences at the bottom, and the longevity of citations were one of the markers for where on that scale a science fell. You can read more about this theory and other ideas around scientific progress in the Progress in Science book chapter by Feller and Stern in the show notes below. Yeah, I mean, if you talk to uh, young researchers, I mean, I remember getting an email from somebody a few years ago saying, I'm reading this really old paper. It turned out to be from 15 years ago, you know, and the idea that there could be anything of any any usefulness uh, in such old documents or, you know, things from previous centuries is uh, completely foreign. And part of that is because techniques and frameworks have been utterly transformed. So if you do read something from, say, the 1950s or 1940s, then clearly its understanding of how the particular phenomenon might be produced by hereditary characteristics is going to be incredibly rudimentary because we didn't understand. And there will be, it will be completely impossible for anybody to have then actually investigate in precise detail that process. I think because that is so true, it's so fascinating whenever we have times where there are these kind of long living seminal papers, you know, not only uh, obviously Watson and Crick, but, you know, looking at like Oswald Avery's bacteria. And I remember doing that at GCSE and then in sick form and then at undergrad. And, you know, it happens over and over again because it was seminal and no one, no one is going to improve that in any way that takes away from the importance of that discovery. Yeah, except I mean, I mean, I'm I'm glad you're very glad you learned that at, at GCSE. Did you really study Avery at GCSE? That's fantastic. Yeah, in terms of just like, uh, well, you heard his name, right? Yes, exactly. So very much name only. Well, fantastic, and you know, or even if you just did an A level, then that's great because most people have never heard of Oswald Avery. Uh, but I mean, that's that's another really interesting example. So what Avery was studying, he became very intrigued by this phenomenon which had been identified in the 1920s, whereby if you put two kinds of pneumococcus, these uh, bacteria that produce pneumonia, together, even if one of them was killed, you could end up transferring a character from one to the other. So it changed its shape or it changed its its degree of uh, infectiousness. So 
he wanted to know, well, what what's going between this, this transforming principle, as he called it? What What is it? And he began this in the early 1930s and he carried on. And then in 1943, he'd done all these various controls because he's an incredibly conservative and careful man. And he was able to show that by using enzymes that would say destroy protein or would destroy DNA, he was able to show that the transforming principle must be made of DNA. Now, what he doesn't say is, hey, genes are made of DNA, right? He doesn't say that. He, he did kind of say that in a letter that he wrote to his brother in 1943, but he didn't, uh, he didn't say it in his paper. The paper's very, very conservative, can feel the younger co-authors kind of straining at the leash, trying to uh, say, no, we should say something a bit brasher. But this wasn't his style. Plus, there was a problem because, I mean, and, and the paper was met with substantial opposition. It didn't change people's ideas overnight because the problem was that genes were on chromosomes that people knew. Chromosomes were made of proteins, which were infinitely varied in their structure, and of DNA, which appeared to be very boring because it's got four bases and these phosphate backbones. So the structure wasn't known, but the composition looked very boring. So the obvious conclusion, and there were experimental reasons indeed, Nobel Prize winning experiments that suggested that genes were in fact made of proteins because proteins are unbelievably variable and so are genes, whereas this boring stuff is probably just the scaffold. So all of that comes back to what we were discussing a long time ago so Watson and Crick and Rosalind Franklin and this idea that yeah was she credited enough was she kind of written out of history all of this it's really interesting discourse and I think you know we talked in the lecture that you gave us briefly about how you kind of were trying to tread very carefully around it because it's a very emotive topic for a lot of people and I, I think it was written very well in terms of yes she absolutely should have been asked and kind of credited but at the same time she probably knew that it was going to happen because there was a long-standing you know community there yeah. I think it was really well written but very interesting as well it was yeah we were I think we were both very concerned uh, I mean you know I'll be absolutely frank uh if either or better still both of us had been women we would have been much less concerned but you know there's a, such sensitivity about who can tell which stories at the moment that we were very concerned that our intentions might not be completely clear so one we wrote it extremely carefully and it was re-edited it was rewritten so many times it was an awful lot of work uh, including with the, the help of our editor at nature lucy oddling smee who asked us lots and lots of questions and helped us to because we were constrained very much by space because it's kind of magazine art and one of the things we did to try and one attract attention to it but also to preclude or to avoid any misapprehension on the part of people who are interested was we we wrote a very long Twitter thread, 27 tweets, I think, with the images of all the documents that we had used. And again, Nathaniel and I worked, Nathaniel Comfort, my colleague who co-wrote the article, we worked on that and it took, you know, I don't know how many versions of it we went through, trying to get it as, as neutral and simply present the information that we, the logic of our argument, clearly this was reconstruction, right? Exactly like a scientific article. I mean, the you know, the bits of the article, there were things that we discovered in the last week. I mean, literally, as it was about, they were about to press the big red button saying print. We discovered more things that we had to, you know, change. Had we known those from the beginning, the article might have been a bit different. And I'll, in a minute, I'm going to give you a an, another scoop, which I've since found, right? So you'll be the first yeah. person to hear this and your listeners. Um, so I, I think the, the, the key thing is that 
you need to understand that why people assert care so much about it is because the way that the, you know, well, two things. Firstly, DNA is so amazingly important, right? It is changed biology. It is changed medicine. It's changed the way we speak. DNA is in our DNA. You know, so this idea of this deterministic thing, which is inescapable, which has these completely powerful effects, is absolutely everywhere. Now, without wishing to get all postmodern on you, DNA was not DNA like that back in 1953, as I've been explaining. So the King's College group in London was the key groups. So that's composed of John Randall, who's the head of the lab, Morris Wilkins, who is his deputy, and then this postdoctoral researcher who they recruit to work on the project, who has never worked on any living material before, right? She's worked on coal. So that's Rosalind Franklin. So she's learned X-ray crystallography during her first postdoctoral period in Paris. And then she comes here as the person with the technique and the drive, probably, that's what Randall sensed, that could make Wilkins, who was a bit of a slow coach, actually get on with things. And the reason why they're looking at DNA, and there are lots of people studying other stuff in the laboratory, they're interested in the relationship between molecular structure and function, and in all sorts of ways, in muscles and so on. And if you're interested in that, you've got either these proteins in chromosomes, which are amazingly complicated, and you've got this relatively simple stuff, which is just composed of four bases and this these phosphates. And that's why they're going for DNA. They're not sure what it does, but it looks like it could be relatively doable. And that's always the key thing in science. Choose a problem you can solve. No point in, you know, I don't know, trying to solve the problem of consciousness. I mean, I think that's a bit of a waste of time myself because we don't have the tools. So that's why they're studying it, because it looks easy. And even so, it's hellishly difficult, right? Then This is well before computers. It all involves complicated maths. So it's all done with slide rules and log tables. Younger listeners, if you don't know what those are, Wikipedia is your friend. Uh, let's just say it all reduced me to tears when I was in uh, year eight. <laughs> when I had to do all that, I found it very complicated. So when they did not think they were studying what genes were made of, they thought it was going to be important. They thought it was doable. And in a way, what really convinced everybody was an amazing chance. And that is that the double helix instantly tells you something about what it does. And that's, I don't think there's any other molecular structure where a 10-year-old can be shown, this is the structure, this is what it does. And they go, oh yeah, I get it, right? Now, Watson and Crick, when they first developed, first started looking at this in 1951, they came up with a ludicrous, completely wrong triple helix, which when Franklin saw it, she just said, look, it, you know, this would just fly apart. It's a joke. Linus Pauling, the great Nobel Prize winning chemist, he, at the same time, it's partly what kind of prompted Watson and Crick's bosses to let them go back and start working on this because they've been told after this catastrophe to get on with their own work and stop messing about with other people's crosswords. But Pauling was a kind of rival to the Cambridge group. And because Pauling was had published, it, it was it was just about to publish a, a similar triple helix, and they knew that was going to be wrong. They could show that, I mean, it wasn't even an asset. He made these ludicrous mistakes. So it was a great chemist, but the oxyribose nucleic acid, Linus clues in the A word, they uh, they were allowed to try and resolve it kind of full time. It took them about five weeks. But had, in fact, DNA been a triple helix where you couldn't instantly see how, in principle, it could one copy itself because you know, DNA is this kind of twisted ladder and the rungs are composed of two of these bases and they're 
of different shapes such that if you know what's on one base, one rung, half rung, you know what can be only one of the bases can be on the other half rung. So if you were to find some way of separating the two halves of the ladder, then you can instantly copy itself. And what genes do are two things. Firstly, they, they can copy themselves. This is known as how chromosomes work and they transmit it down the generations. But secondly, they in some way represent proteins. Genes produce proteins. Enzymes in particular had been demonstrated. So as soon as you see the structure of DNA, you can see in principle, if you could unwind it, then the cell could find a way of copying it. And you'd end up with two identical molecules by this reciprocal base pairing, as it's called. You just have to synthesize the relevant bits and they would just stick on kind of spontaneously. And above all, because the rungs are all the same, these pairs of bases form a rung of the same size, the sequence of bases can be infinitely variable. So they have only got four bases, so it looks like a boring molecule overall. If you look at the composition of DNA, it's really boring. If you look at the fine detail of the structure, it's got this infinitely variable structure. And Franklin, while she was working on this in early 1953, she realizes this too. I mean, she didn't come up with a double helix, but she realized that the structure could be infinitely variable. And this had first been suggested in the 1940s before anybody had actually really started proper work on the, on the, on the structure. So in a way, what really convinced people, took a while, but really in the subsequent years, in the 1950s, that that working hypothesis became really solid in people's head was that it works. You can see it. You can see how it works. Now, had it been something really complicated, and I'm sure, you know, if you wanted to imagine an alien life form, you could invent a triple helix or something, you know, bizarre, blobby like hemoglobin, then I don't think people would have been as so convinced because you it didn't have that instantaneous kind of iconic representation. So DNA was not DNA in a way, right? It didn't have that weight. And indeed, even when it did, as it's gradually realized, you've got to realize it has no consequence. The fact that DNA has a double helix structure has no implication for anything until the late 1960s, early 1970s, when people begin to try and synthesize it and assemble it into different bits and then ultimately creating what's called recombinant DNA, which is the beginning of genetic engineering 20 years after the double helix is discovered. So in a way, the discovery of the double helix, although it looks momentous to us, you know, and, and that's why everybody's so focused on it. Who should get the credit for this? And Watson and Crick eventually did get the credit largely, uh, although everybody forgets Morris Wilkins, who was also doing the work um, and won the Nobel Prize. It was a bit like the Higgs boson. Okay, so we built this huge machine at CERN to test the hypothesis that there is a boson and it as suggested by Higgs. I don't know how many billions of euros that cost, but an awful lot of money. And Higgs was right. Hooray. And I mean, it's very nice and the physicists are really pleased, but so what? It has no practical consequence. So the, the double helix is, I mean, I mean, it may do in the future, you know, who knows, but it's, it's all part of the theory, right? So the double helix is just sitting there inert in a way until eventually it can be attacked using these techniques. So that's one reason why people get really concerned about it, because they think it's this momentous event. But it wasn't, right? It wasn't seen that way at the time. And here's the reveal. Rosalind Franklin did some decisive work on this, some of which was useful to Watson and Crick in guiding what they did. And what they did is 
if you read both the double helix and the papers that they wrote at the time, they call it model building, which is really fancy way of saying fiddling about. Right. So basically, they're continually testing hypotheses. And this isn't with a big kind of two meter high model. It's in two dimensions with simple bits of cardboard trying to see on the basis of the known chemical composition of DNA, what structures are possible to fit into some very handful of a very few uh, number of uh, criteria, every one of which, in fact, they abandoned at one point or another. So even though the data suggested that there were two, probably two strands to the double helix, to the structure of DNA, at one point they started looking at three. So they said, well, let's forget that. We might be wrong. Okay. Let's see if we can fit it into three, see if three works or it doesn't work. So they're trying to, using rules of chemistry, trying to build this structure and then in the end, through a real series of lucky breaks, which including, included somebody peering over and saying, oh, you do know you've got those uh, bits of uh, cardboard upside down, that the actual structure is the other way up. <laughs> they go, oh, all right. Oh, my God. Those bases fit together. I mean, that's literally what happened. Watson literally is able to push these two bits of cardboard and realize that both pairs of bases form the same shape, i.e. a constant rung. And that then it all kind of falls into place. So they're doing that for that kind of uh, five weeks intensity. And then they're absolutely shattered. They've got to work out all the maths to, to prove it. But they're not convinced it's right. Watson in particular was terrified that they got it wrong. And so he was really wary about making a fuss because, well, what if it's wrong? We're going to look utterly stupid, right? Because all they could say is, look, the evidence kind of fits the data from Franklin and from Wilkins, which is what they say, or what Wilkins and Franklin say in the Nature Papers, because there are three Nature Papers, one by uh, Watson and Crick, one by uh, Wilkins and his co-workers, and the other by Franklin and her PhD student, Ray Gosling. And both the Franklin and Wilkins papers are entirely experimental, lots of observations. And they suggest, they say, look, well, this actually fits our data fit the model. Now, in one respect, that's not surprising because there were bits of both Wilkins's data suggesting there were two strands and from Franklin's data suggesting that the, the spiral went all round in a certain height that, that Watson and Crick had used to try and make sense of everything. But the whole thing is actually a, a really, you know, kind of messy lack of proof. I mean, that's why Wilkins went on to win the Nobel Prize because he spent the next 10 years, nine years trying to refine because the Watson and Crick model wasn't actually correct 100%. I mean, as far as we're concerned, it was correct, you know, twisted ladder, all that. But the actual, you know, rivet counting detail, the train spotter nerdy, oh no, it's not, it's 0.2, not 0.3 kind of detail, which is really important. Watson and Crick got that wrong. It wasn't 100% right. And Wilkins was able to demonstrate that. But it's very striking that Wilkins is the only one who carries on. You know, after June 1953, when the papers are published and the supplementary papers are, are finished as well, Franklin moves on to the really exciting stuff, which is how viruses work, how genetic information does what it does. Watson does exactly the same thing. And so does Crick, but at a more abstract and theoretical level. They're both doing experiments. Crick, Crick is much more the brain box. Wilkins is the only one who carries on plodding along saying, is it 0.2? Is it 0.3? How many rivets are there? And getting it all sorted. And we can see, I'll get onto the revelation now, right? We can see exactly quite how significant it was. So I've recently got a letter from Franklin to her best friend, who was an American journalist. And in beginning of 1954, she writes, uh, Franklin writes uh, a letter to Anne Sayer saying what I've been doing. Oh, I haven't written to you for ages. I haven't heard from you. So basically, this is what I've been doing in 1953. 
And she says, oh, God, it was awful uh, with with Wilkins because she really couldn't get on with Wilkins. And in their previous correspondence, she told her all the kind of gory details. So this wasn't a, a big surprise. She said, oh, I was terrible with Wilkins. And then I moved to Birkbeck, which is another university college in London. And now I'm working there and it's much better. And I've got this grant and I'm getting this grant and I'm doing that. But to be honest, the best thing that I did this year was go to Israel and I went on a kibbutz and it's fantastic and all the rest of it. Not a word about DNA. Not one thing. It didn't feature in her review to her best mate who she told about all this stuff. Now, I don't think all we can say from that is she didn't mention it. But that just underlines the point that DNA was not the big thing that it is now. She wouldn't have forgotten it, right? If you found it now, you would not kind of, it wouldn't slip your mind. But in this letter chatting to her mate, much more interesting was this fantastic holiday she'd had. So, you know, that really emphasizes that DNA is, uh, you know, we reinterpret the past in the light of present always. And it's really difficult to distance yourself from presentism from what we now think is significant and important. And that that includes in the representation of Franklin, because obviously with modern day feminism and so on, understanding of women's role and how that's been particularly decried in the past, and in particular, the very unpleasant descriptions of uh, Franklin in Watson's Double Helix, that, you know, we've kind of flipped it over. Franklin's family and friends all say she wouldn't have recognized herself in the modern feminist version, right? Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I simply give you, you know, that is simply a fact that people who knew her really, really well said, no, that's, you know, your your negative version of Watson's or your positive version of Watson's negative account. Uh, That's not right either. She wouldn't have liked that. But I think that the key thing, what we discovered in this article in particular, and we'll close on this, I think, is that they were competitive, right? I don't think there's any doubt about that. And Watson and Crick in particular had a view of Franklin, which they later substantially altered, which was seen through the lens of Wilkins' poisonous relationship with her. And it was mutual. They they despised, well, she despised him, I think, and he was terrified of her, right? And didn't understand anything about her. And she thought he was, you know, weak and lacked. Get up and go. Uh, chutzpah, I guess, <laughs> what he lacked. And, you know, she had in, in spades, you know, confidence and absolute determination to get to the, the 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 heart of the matter. But they were also a group of friends, right? I mean, they weren't friends with Franklin. They became friends. Both Watson and Crick became good friends with Franklin later on, in particular Crick. And she, when she developed her ovarian cancer in 56, she died of this in April 1958. She went and convalesced with the Cricks, uh, with Francis and Adele Crick in their, in their house in Cambridge. And she went to stay for two weeks, right? So that's not something you do with somebody you hate. Uh, or you're, you know, you think stole your data. Um, and there are lots of things to talk about, but I think the key thing is that it became apparent to us as we were doing this work and finding more and more detail that, in fact, she knew that some of this information that Frank Watson and Crick were going to use was already legitimately in the hands of their Cambridge colleagues and that it was likely that they would see it. And she seemed to be okay with that. Maybe there are other interpretations to put on that. That's, I mean, people need to read it and see what they, it's described in the Nature article. And if you go on the Twitter feed, you can find the actual image uh, of this letter where somebody, a, a young PhD student called Pauline Cowan, who's at King's, transmits a message from Franklin to Crick, who she was good friends with. And, you know, that, I just think it makes it, I mean, when I talked to journalists, they hated this, right? Because they wanted the story. And 
I could hear them losing patience with me because I was like I'm doing now. I'm presenting this complicated story. They wanted a hero and a villain and dramatic revelation. And all I'm saying is, hey, it was really complicated and it, it was much less intense and hateful. And they didn't want that because they couldn't sell it to their editors because their editors think that's not what we like. And the final thing, I will close on this. I can show you. I don't know if we're going, if this is a vidcast as well, but you'll just have to see it. So this is something that I bought on eBay during, as we were writing it. And this is the programme to the Royal Society Conversazioni, 25th of June, 1953. So this is the Royal Society Open Day, which still happens. It's called the Summer Exhibition now. And scientists present their, their data. And it's full of uh, abstracts of people, some optical methods for revealing surface microtopographies. Okay, um, there's something else. Somebody's got a load of frogs that they're showing. Hey, I've got some frogs. And then here we are, item 19. So it's kind of like a little, not a science fair at school. A proposed structure for DNA. DNA is a very long, thin molecule. So this is for the public. And this describes in a four or five lines what it was, the discovery, and it's signed, it's led by Rosalind Franklin. She's the one who presents this. And it's got the names of all the researchers, including Watson and Crick, and all the group at King's. So she was presenting the whole thing, not just the model, but the supporting data for it at the Royal Society. So the first public outing of the discovery for the public was presented by Franklin as a joint effort. And I think that just speaks volumes for how it was perceived at the time, rather than the uh, ah, Watson and Crick, you know, bad boys, steal the data, find out the answer. There you go. No, I think it's it's fascinating. And yeah, I think that is the, the end point, right? Is that scientific discovery is, is not really something that we notice when it's happening. And yeah. we like to look back and, and say, yeah, that was it. But we don't really know what happens until it's happened. So Even the case with the double helix. So there's the, the moment that I've described where they flip these bits of cardboard and they can now see. So you think, right, that's the moment. But it wasn't. So they actually then had to, well, Crick in particular, had to spend another week doing some really complicated sums. And it's at that point that Watson says in the Double Helix that they go into the Eagle pub in Cambridge and Crick says, we have discovered the secret of life, which Crick always said. He never said. You know, what he actually says is, you know, at the end of that, I was so tired, I went home to bed. And Watson, in fact, in 2016, at a meeting in Cold Spring Harbour for the centenary of Crick's birth, uh, said, yeah, he never said it. I made it up. It read well. So it's just an idea that, you know, if you everybody, I think, should read The Double Helix. It's fantastic, but it's really interesting how it works, why it works, because it's full of, you know, nerdy detail about X-ray crystallography. It's full of gossip. It's a very, very strange book. And it's immensely readable. And it's also got these lies, these novelistic devices, like seeing this Photograph 51 business. It's got this representation of Franklin, which is a horrible caricature, which is really Wilkins version of what she was like. And then at the end, it's also got a post face, partly because there was a huge row when he wrote the drafts and both Wilkins and Crick threatened to sue him. Absolutely massive row from 66 to 68 uh, before it was published. Uh, they were furious with it, in which Watson, as a consequence of these criticisms, he wrote this post face in which he kind Thank of Thank you to Matthew so for taking time out of his busy schedule to chat about scientific discoveries with me. As always, links to the articles and People resources we discussed can be found in the show notes, including Watson Matthew and Nathaniel's Twitter 
and the That Science Twitter thread showing the Royal Society programme. In other That Science related news, back in our very first episode, I said I'd update you if Harriet's title is accepted. I'm delighted to say that despite all my best efforts to get her blacklisted from all publishers, her paper has been accepted. So many congratulations to Harriet. For now, make sure you follow us on our socials for any updates and tune in next week for Susan's episode of Is That Science? Thanks for listening.